This episode of Rick and Rick Rule the World is brought to you by Taskin, the first name in premium quality travel gear. At Taskin, the holidays are now ready for takeoff with slim, stylish gear like the Taskin Edge professional laptop backpack for business and travel. Order now at TaskinSF.com. Next up on an all-new Rick and Rick. Fire up the lightsabers and prepare for the jump to light speed. It's time for the official Rick and Rick review of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. That's right. All the swashbuckling action, all the kick-ass special effects, all the franchise callbacks and Easter eggs. As we watch the curtain fall on the nine-movie, 42-year Skywalker saga marking the end of a cinematic era. And it all starts right here, right now. On the one show where everybody loves Babu Rick. And everybody rules the world. Hi, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And may the force be with you. Welcome to a special edition of Rick and Rick Rule the World. I'm Rick Matheson, and I am joined, as always, by the Boba to my Fett, the Obi-Wan to my Kenobi, <laughs> the Jar Jar to my Binks, Rick Wooten. How the heck are you? I'm great, man. I'm excited to talk about this movie. I know, this is something right? that uh, you and I have been talking about for at least a year now. Yes, God, it's so hard to believe. So we are here to give everybody our official Rick and Rick review of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. I saw it last night. I feel like I've got as many questions for you, Rick, as comments on this particular installment, this final episode of the Skywalker saga. One, it struck me, Rick, I, I want to get your feedback on this because I felt this last night when I saw the movie. The opening we see a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yes. It's got kind of a whole new meaning for you and me and all of Generation X. I mean, we're talking about a movie storyline that literally dates back to our early childhoods. We were the first children to wage lightsaber battles and collect Star Wars action figures when we could get them and dream of flying an X-Wing fighters and the Millennium Falcon and all of that stuff. What did you feel when you saw those words? You know, I, I think I've told you this before. I have seen every movie uh, in the series in the theater, uh, going all the way back to the 1977 movie where my dad took me to see it. And so for me, there was a it's kind of a, a bit of nostalgia, a bit a bit of like belonging at the at the movie when I saw it. And, and in fact, I have carried that tradition forward. And I think I've taken my kids to uh, my two boys to every one of the movies that have come out in their lifetime, uh, kind of, you know, to continue to pay homage to that. So, you know, for me, I won't say it's a religious kind of thing, but, you know, it's it's definitely something that uh, has been a big part of my life through most of my life. Yeah, me too. I have also seen each of the movies in theater. I had to beg my brother to take me when uh, the first one came out. He begrudgingly came with me and then ended up loving it like everybody else. The movie came out on May 25th. 1977. People really can't appreciate that this was like, it wasn't exactly the first summer movie, but it was the first mega hit one anyway, a phenomenon. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think that uh, people also forget that people didn't take uh, science fiction or space movies serious yeah. really until this movie came out. And, you know, this movie laid the groundwork for, you know, other science fiction, like 
like critical movies like Blade Runner years later. And, you know, this was, this was definitely something different at the time. It wasn't campy. It wasn't, you know, silly. It wasn't made for children. This was like a real story, which was something different. At that time, a lot of the science fiction of that day prior to Star Wars was dystopian. If it was a grown-up movie, it was dystopian. Even George Lucas had that, I think his first movie out of grad school was THX 1000 or whatever, whatever the sound yeah. system that we all see now, well, people exactly. might not realize that that was the name of his first movie. And it was dystopian. And I read recently that it was a flop and his wife said, why don't you do something fun? Makes people laugh or cry. And that's right. when he did American Graffiti. And that was a hit. And then he like really plumbed the depths of his childhood and put together the movie that uh, recalls Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and all exactly. that. Exactly. And yeah, it was so a phenomenon. T- so THX uh, 1138 came out in 1971. And, and to your point, I mean, it was it was definitely that dystopia that we actually saw continue for quite a while. I mean, yeah. movies all the way up to 1984 and, you know, things like that. Uh, and, and so, again, that, that kind of comes back six years later. You know, he puts out Star Wars and and Star Wars wasn't that dire. It wasn't that dark. It was it was, you know, almost uplifting. And, you know, it it had just a different tempo and story to it. There was a book. It came in 1978. So roughly a year after the movie came out. And it was called Star Wars Splinter of the Mind's Eye. What I didn't know, I remember the cover distinctly, but what I didn't know is that it was actually developed to be the sequel to Star Wars. It was going to be a low-budget movie sequel if the original Star Wars wasn't a big success because they did not think it. No one thought it was going to be a big success. 20th Century Fox thought it was just going to be a total flop. And so they had developed this. I mean, it was to the point where the story had to have existing characters and existing props that could be reused. And apparently he opened the book with a fight in space and they said just cut that out we're not going to be able probably not going to be able to afford to do another shootout in space but little did they know that movie was never going to get made because star wars was such a huge hit yeah i I was just looking through right now so other popular sci-fi movies in the 1970s silent running which you know again is uh kind of darker soylent green (laughs) aliens close encounters of the third kind westworld uh solaris you know, I, all the Andromeda strain, all these movies were, you know, much, much darker, right? You know, yeah. Logan's Run. Uh, it, it, it is interesting to to see how different this movie was and, and how much this kind of, you know, I mean, I mean, how many movies, you know, 42 years, how many movies can have such a, a you know, not only a, a long run, James Bond, yeah. But, you know, how, it can have a long run, but have such a cultural impact. Yeah. I mean, just, just we just saw this movie and, and it blew me away at how many people came to the theater dressed up. How much uh, of the Christmas sales are all pivoting around things that are related to this movie? It's absolutely amazing. Yes. Yeah, no, it is crazy. There has really never been anything close to this. What I did read, just because you made me think about it, is nobody thought to do, I guess, Baby Yoda toys. They purposefully decided not to do that because they wanted it to be a surprise from the show The Mandalorian. And I don't know if there's a Babu Frick doll yet. So that might be next year's big seller. Next topic here is box office. So this is the ninth installment of this franchise. And I guess it went in $176 million. 
dollars in theaters over its opening weekend, and I guess another three hundred and seventy-four million dollars globally. Now, I guess Disney nailed it. They said that they projected one hundred and sixty-five million opening domestic, and it did better than that. But I guess other analysts had forecast. 200 million. So it was kind of seen as a disappointment. It, I guess just because the earlier, the last two movies, like 2017's The Last Jedi opened with 220 million. And I guess the one before that, Force Awakens, came in at 248 million uh, and ended up selling 2 billion globally, which I'm not sure I realized that. So it's down a little bit, but I have a feeling this one's going to have traction. It seemed like my audience really liked it and and i i really enjoyed it i actually heard you in my head because back i want to say summer of 2018 we did our comic-con episode and you said something very interesting in that because i guess that was the first announcement about the movie you know we said hey this is a lot to carry on jj abram's shoulders you know is he going to be able to do it and you said no because there's no way you're ever going to please star wars fans the fan base is just too intense you were right there's no possible way to please everybody yeah I, i have to say i've been uh kind of disappointed with the uh, critical evaluation of the movie. There's there's a lot of people who um, have spoken out against it. Now, some of them, I, I think it's popular to say negative things, yeah. you know, to be able to come out and say like, oh, this movie's crap. Let me give you all the reasons why. I mean, that's kind of a popular thing to do right now. It's kind of the trend in society. But beyond that, you know, some of the some of the folks that don't normally do that, um, <clears throat> I was a little disappointed in in some of the reviews when I went to see it. I I didn't go in with like the highest expectation. I mean, we've talked about this before with other movies where the amount of pressure on this crew to deliver a movie is insane. Yeah. They're they're wrapping up 42 years of movies where you know this is one of the most passionate fan bases ever more so than like we talked about this with marvel way more so than marvel you know i mean it's just ridiculous and for them to be able to pull off a good movie uh was next impossible yeah and so i thought they did i thought i thought they actually you know did good credit uh, and, and, you know, so I was a little disappointed in some of the critical reviews of it. We have to take our first break here. When we come back, a deeper dive into Rise of Skywalker's storyline, overarching themes, and more. Hey, Rick and Rick Nation, don't forget to check out our website at rickandrick.com. It's double the Rick in just one click at rickandrick.com. And we are back. Rick and Rick rule the world in our official spoilerific review of Star Wars, Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. Let's take a bit to talk about storyline here. I should tell folks major spoilers here, so if you have not seen the movie yet, you do not want to listen to this That's until right. afterwards. That's definitely big spoiler alerts. Yeah, so there has been this galaxy-wide broadcast by Emperor Palpatine, who's supposed to be dead. He somehow is regenerated, and he has broadcasted that he's coming back and the Sith are going to take over or whatnot. And and Kylo Ren has obtained this, this Sith Wayfinder device that leads him to the broadcast source on the planet Exegol. And there he finds Palpatine. And I guess his intention was just going to kill him. And he comes right. into this space and it looked like they had created a bunch of clone Snokes. And so Emperor Palpatine, he said, I want you to come to the dark side. And if you do what I want, then I'm going to give you everything that, that you want. And apparently Palpatine's been building this ginormous armada of star destroyers and all he wants kylo to do is find and kill ray and 
Ray, she's been right. trained under General Leia. Meanwhile, Finn, Poe, and Chewbacca have information from this spy that's within the First Order who is confirming to them that, yes, Palpatine is alive. And that's where we take off here. This movie ends up, and, and, and I feel like, Rick, we'd talked about, you know, chiasmus within a chiasmus within a chiasmus. The, the chiasmi. I felt like this <laughs> attempted to do it uh, more than I thought they would. There were a lot of callbacks in this movie. And the story beats of this one did echo. It wasn't just one. It was mostly around A New Hope. But they kind of touched on big points in all the movies in some way or another. I felt like it, it worked pretty well. There are a couple ones where I couldn't really remember. I was thinking, oh, are they touching that callback to that? One that stands out is Luke. He has gone to find Ray. She's gone back to his planet. He's, she's kind of given up because she has learned that she or senses that she is a Palpatine. And Luke visits her and essentially says, you, you're supposed to do this. You have a kind of a destiny here. You are a Jedi. She has no way to get off the planet, but all of a sudden she looks and there's an X-Wing fighter, Luke's old X-Wing fighter, coming out of the water. That one stood out to me because I seem to remember in, I want to say the second movie, he couldn't do that. Yoda had to lift it exactly. up for him. Now, now, there was two things I noticed in this. You're absolutely right. There was the call back to, you know, the, the X-Wing coming out of the water. And, and you're right. You know, Yoda kept telling him, you know, you're you're what's holding you back. You can you can do this. And he's like, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he gives up. And and Yoda pulls it out. So there was actually that callback. But I, the other thing I thought was interesting is, unless I'm mistaken, that was the first time we'd ever seen one of the existential uh, Jedi, you know, impact the world around him. And Luke actually pulled the X-wing, which he couldn't do in 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 uh, the second movie. He actually pulled it out of the water. But he was he was transcended at that point which we've never seen any of the the transcended uh jedis be able to affect the world around them kylo ren and ray have this sort of psychic bond that we've seen in the earlier movie or movies where they can actually kind of inhabit each other's sort of mental space he is trying to tempt her to come over to the dark side like Skywalkers tend to do and she's tempted but it's not for the reason that he thinks and she has this battle with him and Leia senses that this is going on and kind of does what Luke did in the last movie, kind of projects out to him, giving up her life to try to impact his soul, essentially. And he feels her, and he sees a manifestation of Han Solo, who kind of talks to him. And essentially, he comes to realize that he's not going to be the evil thing that he's, you know, thinks he's going to be, that there is good in him, and there's a way to redeem himself. And that kind of sets the trajectory of Rey going after Palpatine. Now, talking about that story thread, Rick, I want to get your opinion on this, because there were a couple things in that arc that were a little odd to me. So she goes after Palpatine and yeah. has this final confrontation, but he tells her, yeah, I wanted you to come here because I want you to kill me because I have all the Siths in me who have ever lived. And once you kill me, I'm going to inhabit you. It was almost like right. the, the master from the strain. And so she's like, shoot, I can't kill him. But she ends up killing him and isn't the Sith. So was it that she deflected his own lightning back at him that he was killed safely without it infecting her? You know, I, I wondered this as well. I, I pondered this quite a bit after the, the movie because uh, to your point, Inevitably, she does kill him. 
Yeah. And and so one would assume that if you kill him, that therefore, you know, that quote unquote releases all the the Siths and they they basically inhabit her body. Yeah. But I I think the point that the movie was trying to make is if she kills him out of anger and hatred, then she basically becomes a Sith. If she you know ends up killing him out of good. Uh, then she goes to the light side. So, you know, the whole point of that scene, my understanding, is that that was the the pivot where she's choosing, does she go towards the Jedi or does she go towards the Sith? Mm -hmm. And killing him doesn't negate which choice she's making. It's just, you know, the the pivot point at which that decision is being made. And so, yeah, I mean, you could, you could see that she ended up killing him, but it's, it, my take on that wasn't as much that she was reflecting back his power as she was channeling all the power of the Jedi's right. at him, which was deflecting his power, but then it overcame his power. And, you know, they, they based, she basically just eradicated him. And so it wasn't that she killed him. She just basically uh, destroyed all of, of the evil. Yeah. And, uh, and did that with the good of the Jedi. And that's, that's kind of that, you know, the scorched earth kind of scene that you saw there towards the end. That makes good sense. She was hopeless before that. He had kind of thrown right. her down on the ground and apparently had killed Kylo Ren. And she had that moment where she was saying, be with me, be with me to the other Jedis. And right. then when she got up to stop him, she still didn't really have that hope yet. She was It was almost just force of will. And then Kylo Ren, then pulling the trick where she got his lightsabers, kind of was like she realized, I am a Jedi and I'm going to do this. And, and it was kind of like hope came back to her um, that's right and that's right able to defeat him now one thing though at the beginning of the movie palpatine told kylo ren to go kill her so right. how if he had killed her then he wouldn't have been able to take over her body so there was kind of a disconnect there unless for some reason it was all just chess and he knew they were all going to end up on his doorstep <laughs> Yeah, I, I wondered this as well. And I mean, you could take this two different directions. First one is, if Kylo Ren was actually able to kill Rey, then he would become, you know, whatever you want to call it, the Alpha. And therefore, if he killed Palpatine, then he would be consumed by the, the Sith uh, energy. Uh, you could assume that the Master was so, like, ability to see so much in, in, in Chen just moves ahead that he then could figure out that, you know, there was no way he would be able to do it. So therefore, he knew that would bring Ray there. And that's why he chose to go that way. I, I don't know, maybe I'm giving Palpatine too much credit in that second one. But I mean, it really could be either one. And they, in the movie itself, they didn't really give you the answer. In the fact, they, there was lots of things they didn't give you an answer to, like how exactly Palpatine came back, right? Yes. I mean, they, to the fact that you know that it's one of the the powers of the sith is to cheat death i mean it was referred to in a previous movie right yeah but uh what 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 the heck does that mean and like how did that happen because that was kind of bizarre and you know it's it's almost like you you referenced uh you know a vampire movie earlier uh a vampire tv show but it's, it's almost like that where you know when you saw palpatine you can see he was like recovering from death right, like right. he was struggling to come back from it he hadn't regained his full strength until he absorbed the power of uh Kylo Ren and Rey and right. so it was it was interesting to kind of see that and it just didn't give me the satisfaction of knowing what was going on and, you know and to your point you had you had this whole 
audience of clones? Why wasn't the absorbing power from like anyways? It, it was a it was it was kind of interesting. I'm sure there's more to it, uh, and obviously couldn't fit into the movie. The clones, you're right. There was like how many thousands of them, and they just all stood totally. in the audience while this fight's going on. <laughs> they didn't totally. do anything to help. And, and before we move off the scene, let me let me point something out that uh, I, I I thought it was interesting. I looked it up and I figured out where it came from. Uh, there's the the scene where Kylo Ren actually heals her, and there was the a previous scene yes. where she healed uh, the sandworm, right? Yes. And um, those see actually she she heals Kylo Ren as well yes. after she yes. stabs him with lightsaber. Uh, and so the, it was it was kind of interesting that like that was a, the, an ability that we've never seen from the Jedi before except we had and this was really interesting uh two days before the movie came out uh the the latest uh episode of the mandalorian came out with baby yoda and uh baby yoda used that power in that tv show so they actually pre-released that tv show so that it wouldn't be the first time you saw it in the movie uh and so it was it was it was interesting to see you know that power some of these 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 powers we hadn't seen before kind of emerge and you know and and just kind of to that point when we saw luke being able to you know communicate across the cosmos to project his his you know vision it's what killed him Right. right And and when we saw Leia do it, it's what killed her. Right. However, we can see Ray and Kylo Ren do this with each other regularly with no impact. Yes. And it's kind of interesting to see that kind of paradox between, you know, what these these older Jedi's can't really do, but here's the these two people who are fused and and the Emperor makes some reference to the fact the that they have a, exactly you have a special bond that is you know very rare uh because that that same ability with two other people uh you'll pretty much will will kill one of them which is which is pretty fascinating in that scene we kind of revisited the whole first chiasmus and had a skywalker on the dark side redeem himself at the last moment and save the jedi who is trying to stop the evil Emperor. Right. So once again, you know, we saw that kind of repeat itself. I'll point out one other Easter egg, and that's uh, in the opening crawl. You mentioned the opening crawl earlier. There was uh, a piece in there about, you know, they could hear, uh, you know, uh, some sort of a message, a sinister voice of the late Empire Palpatine. Uh, and it's kind of funny where I, I, I only saw this online. I think I f- saw it on the week. And uh, it was actually a reference to the Star Wars content in the video game Fortnite, of all things. No way. Which, uh, which was kind of interesting. So, yeah. So we've got them kind of like doing crossovers with Fortnite. They're doing crossovers with the Mandalorian. I mean, it was, it was interesting how they tied so many of these properties together in this movie. Well, yeah. So when Rey was having that be with me moment where she was calling on the Jedis, the right. voices that you heard, what I had read, because I haven't seen some of these were characters from the animated series and i'd heard some video game but i didn't know it was Fortnite. you know it totally tied together the whole universe and, and made everything canon there was this whole thing about poe and finn being attracted to one another and i guess there's this whole fan base that wants them to be together i guess probably disappointed in the movie but the thing that struck me in this is we're in the last episode and it seemed like they went a 
above and beyond to make it super clear that they were very much heterosexual. And I thought yeah. that was that was kind of like, okay, I didn't care either way, but it seems like you're right. really trying hard to make it clear that they're not. And I, I, I wondered why. Well, J.J. Uh, Abrams had, had, I think, made some commitment that there would be, you know, some sort of representation of uh, LGBT right. in the movie. And there was, if you remember when people were returning, there was uh, couples that came together that were same sex. Right, right, right. Uh, and so that was that. And in fact, J.J. Uh, Abrams actually came out uh, just after the movie, because if you remember, there uh, was the, the 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 recurring theme through the movie where Fenn kept saying, you know, Ray, I, I want to tell you something, right? Yes, you know, they'd almost die here. He'd, and so I, a lot of people interpreted that to be that he was going to convey his feelings to her. Right. In uh, Gigi Abrams, uh, in a in a press conference afterwards, said, No, no, that's not it at all. It's that he was saying that he could feel her force right. and that he was force sensitive. Right. And that was all about, you know, basically uh, showing that more people were now sensitive to this and he could feel the the force from her. Yeah. And, you know, there's the scene where he's like, you know, I think he, he makes a comment about, I know she's there, I can feel her. Right. But I also kind of felt like, why do we have that we have to explain everybody's sexuality? Yeah. So th this kind of goes back to the, the Catherine Kennedy thing where, you know, she got a lot of flack after the last movie for uh, political politicizing the last movie too much or pushing for that to be. And I, I think that uh, this movie kind of returned back to the fan base. And instead of trying to make uh, a movie where it addresses everybody's comments, everybody's feedback, everybody's uh, political needs, they they really just focused on what they felt would be fan service, uh, but then, you know, kind of carried through with a few things. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it works. I don't know that it doesn't work. I, I won't make a judgment there. I just, I, I feel like, you know, some of this is just normal and it's, it's kind of a reflection of the times, just like every other movie has. Yeah. And um, I actually was very happy with how a lot of these things worked into the movie without making the movie about that. And so the movie was about the story, which I thought was fantastic. It kind of all had felt a little bit political to me, but I felt like this one had some of that same kind of spirit that um, Jen Erso's character had in Rogue One, that sort of rallying speech that she gave in that movie was very much for a yeah. resistance. And here we had a couple of instances where we saw it was Poe's former girlfriend. She said they win by making you think you're alone. Several characters said something to the effect of they want you to feel like you're alone. Poe right. said, we're not alone. Good people will fight if we lead them. And Ray said right. something like the first order wins by making you think you're alone. And I felt like oh, that was kind of a good message. It was Great. someone in the movie said something like that famous saying, of, you know, evil succeeds when good people do nothing. And, exactly. uh, and there was very much that thread in this. And boy, this was it. This was all game over. And you saw Poe lose faith a couple of times. And then to have Lando Calrissian arrive with the giant posse, which was a throwback to Empire Strikes Back, if I remember correctly, and the first movie. Also, Ray's lack of faith, you know, where she lost her faith for a moment and then kind of regained it. There were several instances in this where yep. it was very much about, you know, you just can't give in. You can't lose hope. You've got to go forward.
forward. And I, that part I really, really like. I hate the name First Order. I keep thinking it's a boy band. But, but the Empire and the New Order or whatever, they always have a single point of failure in whatever they construct. Exactly. <laughs> Those were at least modulated, exactly. but, but you know, it was the tower and they were able to switch it to another tower. But I kept thinking, Angie, couldn't make all of them be these towers? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's like the worst IT scenario where there's a single point of failure. It's yes. like there's one Ethernet cord coming into the entire building. And if anybody cuts that, we're hosed. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought that was pretty funny, too. And, and, you know, to your point, like all these there, there's recurring themes that have happened through many of these movies. Right. So, you, you know, you see. Uh, Han Solo sacrificed himself so that Luke Skywalker could escape. And, you know, here you have Kylo Ren sacrificing himself so that Rey could, yeah. could continue on. I mean, you've got the, the a lot of these same themes continue through it. And that's where the chiasmus comes in. So let's start with final grades. You go first. Okay, so I've said it many times that I like Star Wars. I've never been a ginormous fan. It wasn't like I had to see all of them multiple times in the theater. And I felt like this was a very rewarding movie. I, I was entertained. I could remember parts of it. It almost didn't matter if you didn't remember all the way back. It was more of a right. sense of it. I feel like there was an investment in that original feel, what we felt those first, first movies that, that nobody was ever going to be able to quite get. You can't capture that lightning again because we aren't those children anymore. It was kind of like what I said at the top of the show. It's like Star Wars is imprinted in our limbic system at this point. It was a part of our childhoods and Absolutely. Um, but you couldn't go back to, to yeah. you could never get there again. But having them all together and kind of had that feel of the old nostalgia. days. Yeah, yeah, nostalgia and and still I felt invested in characters. I thought that all of the characters were engaging. And so I was pleased. I was pleasantly surprised and I would give this a solid B, maybe even approaching a B plus. For all things that it was up against, I felt like it delivered. And for someone that's a fan, but not super fan, I felt like it was plenty of closure for me and, and wrapping this storyline up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you summed that up really well. I, I'm a fan. I'm a little more of a fan than you, but I'm not a super fan. I'm, I, I will see all the movies 100% and I'll probably see them more than once, maybe twice. But I'm I'm not one of those ones that feels like I need to see it ten times. I need to understand all the mythology involved in it, and you know, do all the research. I, it's, I'm not that person. But I I recognizing how big of a challenge they went in with this one, trying to wrap up such a, a you know. I don't know, you can't say trilogy. I mean, this is the end of a trilogy, but it was the end of three trilogies, really. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's a huge, huge task that is uh almost insurmountable. And and so I I I give the I give the, the cast, the crew, the writing, the directing uh huge props. I, yeah. I think they actually did very well. Um, it, but I, I land actually exactly where you do. I give it a solid B, approaching a B plus. All right, we do need to take a break, folks. And when we come back, it's time for Loaded Questions, the Star Wars edition. So don't go anywhere. Hey, Rick, check this out. It's the Task and Edge business backpack I was telling you about. Hey, that thing is seriously cool. Who's the target customer for that? Well, it is not just for anybody. The Task and Edge is designed for go-getters. The how do they do it and the look at them go. 
people who want an effortlessly cool premium quality business backpack that's big on status, short on quo. That's cool. It's uh, it's really sharp without being too showy. It's smart without being too gimmicky. I really like it. It's the perfect business backpack for people who carpa the hell out of every DM. And no, <laughs> you can't carpa mine. Go carpa your own at taskinsf.com. <laughs> and we are back with Rick Rule the World here, Rick Matheson and Rick Wooten. And it's time for Loaded Questions, the Star Wars edition. Question number one. The Millennium Falcon can comfortably fit how many people in its cockpit? A, one Wookiee, four Babu Fricks, and one Poe Dameron. B, two Luke Skywalkers, one Poe Dameron, and one Han Solo. C, one Han Solo, one Wookiee, and three Poe Dameron's. Or D, four R2-D2s, three C-3PO's, two Hennish Ewoks, and a Porg in a pear tree. <laughs> the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon fits how many? I'm going to guess C. The answer is B. Two Luke Skywalkers, one Poe Dameron, and one Han Solo. So according to ohmy.disney.com, the Millennium Falcon comfortably fits four people in its cockpit. Okay, question number two. Which of the following Rise of Skywalker actors have also been in a J.J. Abrams TV show? So it can be more than one answer. A, Kerry Russell, B, Dominic Monaghan, C, Greg Grunberg, or D, Billy Lord. Which of these have been in a TV show from J.J. Abrams? Wow, I have no idea. Okay, so the answer is A, B, and C. So Kerry Russell starred in Felicity, which I think was J.J. Abrams' first TV show that he was working on. Dominic Monaghan was on Lost, and Greg Grunberg was in Alias. Billy Lord, as far as I know, has not been in a J.J. Abrams movie. She is the daughter of Terry Fisher, and she has been on three seasons of American Horror Story and a show called Scream Queens. Final question. R2-D2 is classified as what kind of droid? A, not the ones you're looking for. B, the Turbo XT-125 droid. C, an astromech droid. D, a protocol droid. Or E, a polo droid one-step. R2-D2 is classified as what kind of droid? Wow, you're stumping me on these ones. I, then I'm going to go D. Okay, you know what? I would have guessed that too. That is actually what C-3PO is. I distinctly remember yeah, him saying that. Yeah, in the first movie. It is C, the astromech droid. Yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm not I'm not a huge Star Wars nerd. I love Star Wars. I always go see the movies, but this, this level of detail is beyond yeah. me. For sure. Me too. 42 years from now, and we're in our 44th season of Rick and Rick, and we're looking at new Star Wars movies. There'll be a whole bunch of other Star Wars trivia to guess at. That's going to wrap it up. Thank you, Rick Wooten. That was a great conversation. Enjoyed that quite a bit. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Be sure to come on back for the next episode of The One Show, where everybody's name is Rick. And everybody rules the world. <laughs>